Justin H. Pierce, probably still a federal agent. I don't know, maybe. January 5th, 2009. Oh boy, what a day. Well, actually, what a couple of days. So you fall back into the real world from some kind of Renfair nightmare. Then you get shot at by hoodlums. And then, then you find that Delta Green have actually bothered to show up for the party. And even seem quite organized. I have to say that when I saw Steve Anderson in the flesh, I wasn't really sure whether to hug him or punch him. So we just shook hands, awkwardly. When your head is reeling from all that we've been through, it's a bit of a jerk to suddenly find yourself surrounded by maps and whiteboards and spreadsheets and computers. It's also galling when some ginger fuck from Texas tells you all the leads you missed and how an obvious solution would be going hard straight for Steno's face and his base. You know, cutting off his arms and legs, metaphorically speaking. Well, possibly. And then setting him up to fail. You know, it's a plan. And frankly, I'm too tired to debate it. Go for the face. That's something I can do. So our key targets are the not-so-good old boys of Thibodeau Industries. Asshole supporter Christian Lomax, a stupid and probably criminally insane rich white man who has been the loyal right hand of Elgin Thibodeau, the senior stupid and definitely insane rich old white man who has been bankrolling Steno's plans for some time. Yeah, these are the leads we didn't get a chance to follow up after visiting the Honorable Crew of Swords' non-existent office. Well, we did get kind of sidetracked by a man whose face melted, so, you know, it happens. Now, Lomax, who the Greeks ID'd as being New York today, which kind of bet they uh, briefly posed question, why are we bothering? Answer, because... Lomax has a couple of Crescent City properties, one on the Pontchartrain shore and the other in the French Quarter. So we rolled on the lake property first. I did want to do a stance of Venkman, you know, split up and do more damage that way, but we dragon flyers were a real tight flight. So we went as a group. When we got there, a strange yellow bioluminescence came from the lake as we made our way down a long access road through woodland and parked up, concealing our vehicles before setting off on foot, hugging the side of the road. A set of tall, wrought iron gates connected to an imposing perimeter wall soon appeared ahead. Chief managed to get too close and trigger the security lights, so we decided to pull back and see what the response might be. Now, while we were hunkered down, a white mist kind of floated from the direction of the road towards us. As we watched, I could make out shapes that soon revealed themselves to be gangbangers from Boy Tesh's crew. In our caution, we had saved ourselves from a nasty ambush, and now the bushwhackers became the bushwhacked. Well, dragon flies devour their prey, and in short order, Six tangos were down and out. I put a call into base, and our orca hacker chin cut the grid and shut off the power. The perimeter went dark, and then a generator must have kicked in as they came back online. 
Frost and Wilmot advanced under cover, and we went around the wall on recon for a side gate. This they found in pretty short order, and they reported eyes and armed guards, equipped with, get this, G-11s, and supported by dogs. Frost decided to cut the comms to the house at a nearby lime box, but as he was in the process, he was made, and the dogs were set loose. There was an exchange of gunfire, and I headed up to support with Chance and Chief in tow. We were able to flank them. They had given us the advantage by moving into the perimeter, and we lit them up. Now we have G-11s. You know, they're a pretty nice rifle. Things were far from over, though, as more armed guards opened fire from the grounds. Interestingly, they all wore the uniform of Thibodeau Industries. So that kind of tells you all you need to know. Wilmot did attempt to identify himself as an FBI agent, but got a pretty predictable 4.7mm response. They were beginning to concentrate their fire in a worrying manner. I took a minor wound from a ricochet, which hurt like hell, and I was concerned that we were in the process of getting outgunned again. We started to pull back and keep our heads down from lots of 4.7mm caseless rounds buzzing angrily through the air with typical Hector and Cock type precision. As we got back to the vehicle, we were dazzled by headlights lighting up the track and a black Lexus that seemed to float on a plane of crackling lights that we knew was Boy Tesh's ride lit up the night. You know, I'll freely confess, I thought that was it. Game over. Lomax's guards behind us and Tesh's in front. We were a dead-fed sandwich. We were toast. And I threw down my weapon and signaled the others to do the same. Then something totally unexpected happened. Boy Tesh and his associates exited their vehicles and proceeded to gun down Lomax's men. I have to say I was just stunned. Tesh walked over to me with an insane grin on his face. He then told us that he was a representative of Screech, who was now withdrawing from the Crescent City and leaving us all to it. This was a gesture of peace, apparently, or as much as can be made through superior firepower. His words were punctuated by plumes of flame exploding from Lomax's residence. So much for searching the place for evidence, then. I think I might have started crying at that point, but it was probably hysteria. Cell Dragonfly had somehow flown into a shitstorm, but come out intact again. Now, normal people would probably call it a day right there. You know, thank their lucky stars. But as we saw Tesh and his crew drive away, Anderson said we didn't have time to rest on our albeit slightly fried laurels. So with our smiles firmly stitched on and armed for bear, we headed to Lomax's townhouse in the Via Carre. Here, we executed a systematic clearance, going swapped by the numbers. I'd like to say that included preserving the sanctity of life, but with grim determination, we were the Federal Bureau of Extermination again. Flashbangs, burst fire, tear gas, burst fire. We went like that room to room, gunning more of Thibodeau Industries' uniformed goons down. It wasn't as if they were trying to, weren't trying to kill us. Along the way, I stunned myself with my own flashbang, 
Well, I do play hockey. I hate baseball. There was also a fire started by one of the tear gas grenades. We found an elevator concealed in the kitchen and rode it down to an underground level. There were guards waiting for us, but we had G11s and mags of 4.7 caseless. It was a crapshoot, literally. This is where things got a little confused. So Chisholm had brought up a reserve. <laughs> you know, I love that name. Chisholm rhymes with, well, let's stop there. So Chisholm had brought up a reserve and comms were limited. As a little conflagration that we thought he had neutralized, but hadn't, began to take hold of the levels above, he called the fire department and came in to get us out. Meanwhile, the basement surge had revealed a countdown timer device linked to copper tubing, several holding cells, storage areas, and a guard station, including sanitaries and bunks. We thought the timer was tied to an explosive device. But as the timer reached zero, no explosion occurred. Instead, a vertical plane of dim light at the dead end of the central corridor was observed. Experimentation revealed that to be a gate. I presume so they could bring in reinforcements. But there weren't any. After some discussion, Chisholm decided to take it on himself to be the first to pass through the portal. And as he did, he arrived in an office space with six computer terminals, three of which were tied to the copper tube. Initial observation through the glass windows of the office revealed what seemed to be a warehouse or hangar with the office well above ground level, with two exit doors connecting to metal walkways with doors leading off of them. The open space in between the walkways was occupied by three floats mounted on what seemed to be a large flatbed trucks, and we surmised we were likely in the crew of Honorable Swords' storage facility, which I guess still had to be in Metro New Orleans. Chisholm observed three men armed with AR-15s on the walkways and two more guarding the main sliding double doors. I guess it was just sheer luck that they hadn't been in the area of reinforcement ability where the gate had gone off anyway. In the absence of cell phone reception, it wasn't possible to determine exactly where we were, but like I said, it was a good bet we were still in New Orleans. Chisholm returned through the portal to bring us back with him. After infiltration, we took up defensive positions, covering both entrances, while Frost attempted to gain access to the computers. Initial analysis revealed that the terminals were connected to a local area network. The second side door was revealed when a sixth man entered the hangar area, informing the guards that there had been a fire at the house. I'm presuming that was a reference to uh, Clomax's address. And then they should prepare for action, and that Dex was going to bring in additional men, whoever Dex is. The guards disappeared to reemerge later, equipped with full body armor. I instructed our dragonfly cell not to move or initiate action unless directly threatened. But I guess Wilmot didn't hear me, as he moved unobserved to a room at the far end of the walkway, followed shortly thereafter by Chief, who, when he wants to, can actually move on tiptoe fairly quietly. Through radio contact, I was told Chief had then been shaken by the presence in the room of great quantities of posters bearing the yellow sign. Wilmot informed me that a printing press, which seems to have been used to create the signs, was in the room. Following a sudden enemy evacuation of the building, Chief accessed the terminals using the password Carcosa, discovered by Wilmot, underneath the computer. 
He also found a couple of armory cabinets. Running low on G11 ammo, we issued ourselves with AR-15s. Frost ascertained that the portal was recharging and established the time to reactivation and found a hidden file indicating a route starting at the Superdome down Poydras Street, passing two marked locations, the Civil Court Building and Harris Casino, to turn towards North Peter Street and enter the intersection of North Peter Street and Bienville Street. So we managed to get ourselves extracted, arriving in the settlements beneath Lomax's house and running into the fire department. As I looked around, I saw that Wilmot had not arrived with us. Somehow he got transported to the bayou, surprising our British friends on Operation Cromwell stakeout, who picked him up and got him back to us unharmed. Wilmot said he had a vision of an upside-down house in the depths of the Black Lake Bayou. What that means, I have no idea. Steno crap? Yeah, more than damn likely.